Ahoy Mets fans, welcome to episode 187 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I am Brian Salvatore. Thank you for joining us this week. We have lots of great stuff to get to. Um, we put out the call last week for emails, and thank you for your response. We've gotten a few emails. Again, the email address is podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. We answered three of your emails this week, and then a bunch came in today after we had recorded the bulk of the show. So don't worry, your emails will be part of next week's show. But keep them coming. We love getting emails. It really helps us to structure our conversation. Speaking of conversation... I spoke with Chris McShane a couple days ago to talk about the state of Mets. So here we go. All right, Chris, we have a couple of emails to start the show. Thank you, folks, for sending in your emails. Uh, you can email the show at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. This email is from Andrew. Hello, Brian and Chris. Is Harvey broken forever, or is this stretch of awfulness temporary? How many more starts do you give him before he gets a DL stint or skipped? Thanks for taking my question, Andrew. All right, Chris, so we're recording this at 10.15 on Tuesday evening. Harvey just looked pretty bad against the Nationals for the second time in two weeks. He has not been himself at all this season, but the last four or five starts in particular have been pretty rough. Uh, I know you're a pretty laid-back, not-panicking kind of guy, but where are you right now on the worry meter for Matt Harvey? <laughs> well, uh, that's accurate. I would say it would be foolish to say that I don't have any concern because, you know, when I, whether it comes to him or Har- um, not a Harvey or DeGrom, you know, not seeing them be like them, their typical selves is obviously a little concerning. However, I sort of have a general philosophy that I expect guys to return to their career norms or at least move closer to them as time goes on. So even with this start from Harvey, I'm not ready to, you know, jump ship. I don't think he's done forever. Uh, Personally, I wouldn't even take him out of the rotation. I would let him continue to work it out at the major league level. Um, If the team decides to go with a, a DL stint, or a minor league stint, although I don't think they would frame it that way, uh, you know, just sort of for the optics. That's okay. You know, I'm kind of okay with whatever they want to do, but I think Matt Harvey looks like Matt Harvey, you know, a month from now or three months from now or a year from now uh, at any of those points. I would be surprised if this level of struggle continues for really much longer than it already has. Let's look at this from a couple different perspectives. Is there somebody right now that you think if the Mets called them up, and it could be someone like Verrett who's in the bullpen, is there a pitcher that that you could put out there every fifth day that would be better than Harvey the last, that'd be better than Harvey so far this season? Do you think the Mets have that guy on their roster? Not really in terms of expected future performance. I mean, sure, you could say that, you know, Gabby Yanoa or, or Verrett, or even if you wanted to reach down and, and go get Gazelman. Montero, or Sean, perhaps. Right. Montero. Sean Gilmartin. Sean Gilmartin. Could any of them put up less than a six ERA over the next three or four starts? Of course. Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, I don't I don't think that's out of reach. 
but I also don't expect Harvey to to do that himself, you know. So the difference to me between what I would think Harvey would do in his next few starts and what those guys will do is not great enough for that to be the sole reason why I would take Harvey out of the rotation. Now, if there's a nagging injury or something lingering from the medical issue that he had at the end of spring training, um, you know, something that we just don't know about, that's another factor. And and that might, you know, sort of change the projection of what you think Harvey's going to do. But yeah, to me, simply saying that Harvey needs to go to the minors and work things out for the sake of the team is sort of a, you know, the grass is always greener scenario. I, mm-hmm. I, even this Matt Harvey, I don't think there's anybody who's obviously going to outperform him uh, in, in the system right now. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I, I don't know if I'll agree with you to the extent of that I would leave him in the rotation and let him figure this out at the major league level. I mean, I understand the value in that. You know, he's he's the type of guy who thrives in the spotlight. You think maybe the adrenaline will help him a little bit. He's going to be facing, obviously, the best talent he can now. There's a lot of reasons to keep him in the rotation. But I don't know what's more damaging to Harvey's ego having him be booed at City Field again and be generally, you know, a laughing stock in front of fans or being sent to the minors under the auspices of a rehab assignment or something like that. I don't know. You know, Harvey's a guy who clearly has a, a sizable ego and that complicates matters a little bit. I think if this was somebody like a DeGrom who is less demonstrative, less demonstratively... Uh, I still didn't pronounce that right. I'm not going to try a third time. Um, <laughs> who's, who's less overt about his uh, sort of his ambition to be a star? I think it, it makes things a little bit different. Do you do you agree that Harvey's ego comes into play here? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, that's sort of a little bit what I was getting at in terms of the minor league part of it. That you know, if you want, do want to send him there, you maybe call it a disabled list thing and say uh, you could even just say that the you know sort of lingering issues from the minor surgery that he had mm-hmm. at the end of spring training you know i'm not sure how you classify that but you could probably get a team doctor to to you know stand behind that and make it a legitimate dl stint if you wanted to um you probably get general arm soreness as well <laughs> right know. if you really want to like troll the mets fan base and freak people out even more mm-hmm. like oh yeah his arm's been a little sore that we're just going to put him on the dl but, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's a factor, uh, a little bit. You know, I, I certainly wouldn't make decisions based on it. I think it's if you do want to take him out of the rotation, then that's where I think it could factor in a little bit. The funny thing to me in all this, and I, I'm not advocating this myself, but with the splits that he has, the first, second, and third time through through the order. Mm-hmm. You haven't really heard a lot of like, oh, move him to the bullpen. And I think that might be partly because the bullpen's been really, really good. Yeah. <laughs> but but I don't know. I'm just surprised we don't hear more of that. That, oh, the first time through the order, he's great. Move him to the bullpen for a month and then, you know, see where he's at. Um, and it was something – it happened so quickly with Henry Mejia. When he – That's true. You know, he had those good starts and then he had like two – terrible starts and it was like well that's it moving back to the bullpen forever and uh and move on and 
obviously there's a different track record between those two yeah. pitchers. I thought you were going to advocate for having, you know, Harvey pitch the first four innings every every start and then having somebody Oh, sort of piggyback like piggyback him? with him, yeah. And uh, you know, Terry Collins will never do that. <laughs> Let's just put that out there right now. That is not the type of manager that Terry Collins is, but I I would I would almost be more in favor of a move like that to let him still work things out but limit the opportunities for him to get into big trouble. You know, you would have somebody who'd be re- be ready to go, warmed up by the time it got to the 4th or 5th inning, but that guy could also probably get warm in the 3rd if things really look bad or you bring in somebody for an inning and they still let the the piggybacker take over in the 5th or 6th inning, whatever the case may be. Um, because that would kind of be the best of both worlds. You're not giving Harvey... Like, I think part of the problem here is that the Mets are putting Harvey out there every five days, and being the competitive guy he is, he's going all out for it, and then he's frankly getting you know embarrassed out there. And I don't know if that's... I don't think that's better than than fudging a DL issue, but it's certainly better than just outright sending him down. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of an interesting scenario, and this is something that I'm surprised teams don't do a little bit more. But given the current state of the roster, where you have two or three guys, depending on your opinion of, you know, Ty Kelly and Eric Campbell, who are... Home run hitter Eric Campbell. Yes, as of of tonight. Mm -hmm. But... (laughs) You know, they're sort of interchangeable with other players on the back end of a roster. Mm-hmm. So you have these circumstances that if you wanted to commit to piggybacking, you could really like kind of cycle your minor league AAA guys. Um, and, and you know, for each day that Harvey's starting, call somebody up and have them be the piggyback. You know, maybe have Montero or, you know, or whoever you know, come up, take one turn of throwing two innings after Harvey comes out so you're not taxing your regular bullpen. Uh, but at the same time, you're, you know, you have a plan that, hey, look, Harvey's going to throw X number of innings or pitches. 60 how- pitches, whatever it is, yeah. Right, however you want to do it. Because the one thing that we know for sure is that the velocity has dropped uh, later in his starts, and hitters have hit him better later in his starts. And we know he did not have a typical spring training experience. You know, we, mm-hmm. it's not possible for anybody to pinpoint any one thing that has made him perform the way he has so far in these games. But we know that the buildup and lead into the season was definitely not the norm for him. So. Yeah, if you wanted to get a little experimental, you know, have rotate that piggyback guy because, you know, because of the rules that dictate that once a guy is sent down, he can't come back for 10 days unless there's an, uh, you know, an injury. Um, that would sort of be something. It would be very unorthodox. It's certainly not going to happen. <laughs> we can't stress that enough. It's not going to happen. But in this fantasy world, uh, I, I wouldn't think it would be actually that terrible an idea. And it wouldn't even have to be re- totally restricted to just starting pitchers. I mean, you have, you know, Gil Martin came up. Uh, he's been starting in the minors, um, you know, and he came up a, a few minutes ago as a potential rotation option. 
but he's a guy who you could say, all right, for Harvey's next start, we're going to send Ty Kelly back, you know, on the, on the night before that start, we're going to bring up Gil Martin. He's going to be there to pitch, let's say the fifth and sixth innings kind of no matter what, Mm -hmm. send him back, bring up TJ Rivera, you know, move on. And then for Harvey's next start, do the same thing. Rivera goes back. Montero comes up. Right. Yeah. That that sort the of quad thing. A Express. This is uh, it's sort of the the uh, convergence of if my fantasy baseball management style <laughs> could be used on a real life team. So yeah. I guess I'm sort of referring to Ben Lindbergh's uh, book. Yeah. A little <laughs> bit here that they uh, experimented with an indie league team. Yeah, I uh, I agree with all that. Uh, another hot topic around Mets fandom this week is Daniel Murphy, and we got an email from Christopher about that. Christopher has been a Mets fan since 1982, the year of my birth, and uh, he lives in Ireland, and he says he's a longtime listener but a first-time emailer. And Christopher says, I simply had to email in response to your viewpoint on the non-signing of Daniel Murphy. I feel like so many other sports talk radio callers and presenters, you are missing the actual argument. The issue here was never about second base. I agree that Dilson Herrera is the future and that Daniel Murphy was never going to be the Mets' second baseman for the next four years. However, what is currently happening with David Wright and Lucas Duda was entirely predictable, and Daniel Murphy had to be signed to be the next third baseman or first baseman if the club wanted to win a World Series in the next three years. He goes on, The fact is that he had been the best hitter on the team for the past two years. His defensive criticism, whilst justified, was unfairly singled out in the postseason, when Messrs. Wright and Duda displayed worse fielding acumen than Murphy. Moreover, he was a Met through and through and wanted nothing more than to remain a Met for life. Despite his personal beliefs, he was a clubhouse favorite with his teammates and would have given a hometown discount had he been offered a multi-year contract. Um, He goes on to talk, this is a rather long email, so I'm just trying to concise it a little bit. He talks about the, quote, wall of silence that surrounded his departure, how the front office never stated the reasons they didn't want him back. Um... And uh, he basically was trying to say that, that Alderson was not a Murphy fan. And he didn't want him back. And uh, you know, he goes on to say that he's afraid that the decision to prefer Eric Campbell over Daniel Murphy will conceivably cost us the postseason this year. Um, well, first of all, thank you for your email, Christopher. Uh, Chris, let's take this sort of beat by beat here. Is sure. there any way that the Mets could have signed Daniel Murphy to be their super utility guy. Well, anyway, yes. But any conceivable realistic way that he would have signed the contract knowing he'd be their utility guy. No, I, I don't think so. You know, and, and yeah, I, that just doesn't seem like something that he would have signed up for. And that's not even a knock on him at all. No, it's not. He should be playing every day someplace, probably. Right. Not probably. I'm, He's hitting the I'm, shit out of the ball right now. He should be playing every day. Right. I'm still shocked that the place where he ended up playing every day was not on an American League team. Absolutely, but, uh, yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, the Angels right now, right? We'll, they would kill for Daniel Murphy right now. Yes, and we'll we'll work through the various parts of the, the question here. But uh, even if you expect Daniel Murphy to be more like his old self than what he's done so far this season, which, you know... Uh, Nobody sort of, saw coming. Right. And it's sort of a theme for me 
here with Harvey and him. Uh, but even if you expect the good, decent, whatever Daniel Murphy instead of the on fire Daniel Murphy, uh, you would think the Angels would be sitting there looking at their season, wishing that they had him on their team. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I I don't think he would have signed up to be in a spot where he would be a utility man. And I think if the Mets had spent the money on him, you know, John Neese is still on this team. Neil Walker is not. And Murphy's just the everyday second baseman. And probably Yoana Cespedes isn't on the team either. Yeah. Just, just financially. Yeah. You know that there's a there's a pretty decent chance that would be the case as well. Okay, the next point I want to take here is uh, Christopher says that it's um, entirely predictable that Wright and Duda would both be hurt. Now, Wright, I will give, you know, I think all of us expect Wright to be a diminishing player for the rest of his career. I think if he can plateau, we'll all be very happy, but let's be fair, I think he's more or less on a downward trajectory from here on out. Would you agree with that? Um, uh... I'm the last of the Wright supporters. I I love David Wright. I uh, I was joking with my wife. I wanted to name my son David Wright Salvatore. I am uh, I'm, I'm not messing around here. But do you really think he can have a career like he had, a, a a year like he had in 2008 again, or or even 2013 again? Well, yeah, I was going to say I wouldn't need to go back that far. But 2013. You know, 2012 and 2013, the sort of the seven and six win seasons. No, not not quite that level of expectation. But you know, I'm not going to put it past him to hit reasonably well and play passable defense at third. Um, you know, for a longer period of time, I think that most people would be expecting at this okay. point. Well, that's but, fair. but regardless, the, the the point remains that. You know, yes, you could probably have seen an injury, uh, play, or a, a season from Wright that will be hurt by his back, right? But is there anything about Duda to you that strikes you as a health risk going forward? Well, I mean, the only concern now is that you know there was the back injury they had him on the DL for a little while there last year, and then you know this comes up and it's a little more significant. Uh, now, but coming into the season, I, I certainly didn't think Lucas Duda was a, uh, you know, a major injury concern. Right. Um, so I also, in terms of time missed, I think having a contingency plan for right because of inability to play with his back condition, I think that is a legitimate point. I Absolutely. think. And that that sort of continues to be my larger concern with him. And I think he's played in a surprisingly high number of games so far. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it's more the ability to be on the field than the performance when he is on it. Yeah. But, but yeah, so with him, that I think should have been a bigger factor in the offseason. Yeah. You know, in keeping Juan Uribe or even Kelly Johnson um, – you know, guys who would be willing to sign a one-year deal for a significantly lower amount of money. But Duda, Duda and he, he didn't strike me as that at all. <laughs> no. And I think the other factor here with Wright is, you know, 
Christopher saying that we should have signed Murphy to be our next third baseman. All right, we you and I have discussed this before, Chris, but what where does that leave David Wright? It leaves your franchise, the face of your franchise, who is signed to the largest contract in your franchise's history. And what do you do with him? Yeah. Well, yeah, like I said, I think you could say that in signing Murphy again if you wanted to. Um, but, you know, you're you're in a spot where he probably just ends up playing second base every day. Yeah. And then he could slide over in a situation like this. You know, and I know Dilson Herrera is there. Um, and, you know, he's frankly quite exciting, I think. You know, he, he has the chance to be an above-average everyday player. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you had Murphy around playing second base and then, you know, you got into the scenario you're in now, you could slide him over. But, you know, his his fielding is his fielding. It's not like he's excellent at any given spot. You know, he's probably a little more passable at a corner. But he's not Mike Schmidt in the corner. Right, no. So it's not like he's still... Daniel Murphy and then you know you know you're not in a great spot and not that I think the draft should be a top priority when the team is uh in contention mode as the Mets are right now but sort of the the balance that they struck at second base to me was really really good you know where you you went in knowing that Murphy was going to leave um you're going to get uh, an extra first round draft pick because he turned down a qualifying offer. And, you know, they targeted Zobris. That didn't work out, but they were still able to get Walker by flipping these for him. You know, they they filled the gap between just giving the job to Dilson Herrera to start this year and then looking at him as a long term solution. And Walker, you know, he, he should be sort of in the same spot as Murphy at the end of this year yep. where, you know, you, you can look at it as the difference in production, you know, unless Murphy goes and does, you know, hits 400 on the season, it shouldn't be that great where you can sort of transition from one player to another, to another without affecting the, how good the team is and pick up two first round draft picks along the way. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, just moving through this email, you know, he calls him the best hitter on the team for the past two years. I could argue with that, but I'll, I'll let him have that if he wants to. Um, and I think he, you know, he talks about how Wright and Duda had worse fielding acumen in the postseason. Well, first of all, the postseason's an incredibly small sample size. But also... And, and, and Daniel Murphy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was not exactly, a, uh, you know, a star with the glove as the Mets lost in the World Series. No, he wasn't. And, I, you know, maybe I've just blocked some things out. Is he just referring to Duda's throw home in, game, in the World Series? I think so. I yeah. mean, I think that was the only... That's the only, like, quote, gaff unquote, that Duda had, right? Right. And, 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 and I'll defend so... that throw. Right. It was so out of nowhere. Like, that's why it was so surprising, was that Duda is you know, not a golden glove first baseman, but he's kind of thoroughly decent. He's perfectly cromulent. 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, he's, uh, I, like you said, maybe we're blocking something out, mm-hmm. but I can't recall another major defensive issue for Duda during the postseason. No, and you know, and then Christopher goes on to talking about him wanting to be a Met for life, and you know, look, I'm a sucker for that stuff as much as anybody is. I I want guys on my team who want to play on my team. Nothing makes me happier than seeing how happy Cespedes is playing in New York. Right, that stuff does matter, but it doesn't matter that much, and that should matter for Christopher and for the two of us. It shouldn't matter for the front office. Right, they should be making the a passionate decisions based on what's best for the team. They should know better than I know, and I think in this case, you know, if Murphy was having just a regular Murph season, we wouldn't be getting these emails. Right, yeah, and you know, it's sort of a spot I was in last year with D. Gordon. Mm-hmm. You know, where are you the, implying that Murphy's you, a PED user? Oh well, <laughs> no, but okay. I wasn't. I wasn't assuming that about D. Gordon last <laughs> right, year right. either. Uh, <laughs> but you know, you put a certain amount of playing time with ridiculous numbers in the bank, and your numbers at the end of the season are going to be higher. You know, yeah. and we we're definitely at that point with Murphy that, you know, maybe he hits. 20 home runs instead of his usual, you know, 12, some, yeah. right. Somewhere around that. Um, and the overall line is probably still going to be quite a bit higher than his career norms. But what I would expect him to do over the rest of the season is to, you know, hit like Daniel Murphy. I, I don't think at his age, which isn't that old, he's still just 31. Uh, and, and, you know, he only turned 31 in early April. Um, but I don't think there w- is some revolutionary change in who he is as a hitter. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, it's... um. You mentioned fantasy baseball before in the last question, and I think sometimes we think of our ball clubs like fantasy baseball clubs where you can have... You can afford a guy like Murphy to be your super sub. And, you know, look, if the price was right, I would have taken Murphy back in that role. But the price would never be right. It wouldn't make sense, and it wouldn't behoove him to do that. Right, and that that's not what the Nationals paid him. You know, it wasn't a huge contract by the standards of 2016 baseball, but it's a starting player contract. Mm-hmm. For three years, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it, it's uh, by the end of the contract. I don't think we look at that and say, "Like, oh wow, how did they? How could they have possibly let him go?" I hope you're right. <laughs> I do. Um, the, the one last point I want to make here is that Christopher says that. The team has prioritized Eric Campbell over Daniel Murphy. And, you know, I understand the hyperbole he's going for here, but that's a gross misunderstanding of the assets of either player. You know, Eric Campbell's making essentially the league minimum. He can be sent down. He can, you know, 
be that 25th man on the roster. If the decision was as simple as choosing one over the other, everyone's going to choose Murphy every time. And one more point to make here. If you recall, it wasn't even six months ago that we were all convinced the Mets were still broke. That they would never spend money on Cespedes. And oh, so, yeah. And so, you know, to 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 expect them to spend the money on Cespedes and on Murphy, I mean, that would have been absolutely laughable at this time last year. Or even at a, a New Year's Day, that would have been a laughable suggestion. And so it's not just as simple as prioritizing Campbell over Murphy. There's a lot of factors that go into it. And I think the Mets made a decision that maybe with a certain segment of the fan base is unpopular, but I don't think, like you said, at the end of the contract, I don't think it's necessarily going to be as big of a deal as it is right now. Um, if the Mets don't make the playoffs this year, it won't be solely because of the lack of Daniel Murphy. Right. All right. Well, thanks for your emails. Again, you can email the show at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. We just have two quick things we want to talk about tonight as we get ready for the uh, the last game of the Nats series tomorrow. We have to talk a little bit about the catching situation because Travis Darno has begun throwing again, and he is moving back to Port St. Lucie from California to do some more rehab, rehab work. Uh, Assistant General Manager John Rico said yesterday that uh, Darno felt pretty good after throwing, and although he wouldn't give a timetable for his return, it seems like we are beginning to move in that direction again. So, Chris, how do you think Darno's replacements have done his in his absence, and how excited are you for Darno to get back behind the plate? I think Rene Rivera has played good defense, <laughs> and I am very excited. For Travis Darno to come back. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm a little upset. No one favored in my tweet where I said I'm gonna be able to tell my grandkids one day I was at Rene Rivera's Mets debut. <laughs> I, I thought that was a pretty solid goof, but no one, no one apparently agreed with me. Um, yeah, you know, R- Rivera has been has been this year's Henry Blanco or insert backup catcher here. He's been fine. You know, yes, he's hitting 105, but you know, he's he's been. He's right. going to a backup catcher usually is in this situation. He's steady behind the plate. He's good with the young pitchers. He's not exactly an automatic out. You know, he hit a home run this year. Um, you know, he's he's he struck out seven times in uh, 23 plate appearances. That's not great, but that's not horrific for backup catcher. He's fine. He's fine. And, uh, and Ploiecki, Ploiecki's been... Almost exactly what Darno was over his first thirteen games of the season. When when Darno hit the disabled list, he was batting one ninety six with three doubles and six singles on the year. Plawecki has played almost twice as many games, almost exactly twice as many games, but he's batting one ninety three with four doubles and uh only nine other hits to his name with one home run in there. So, you know, Plawecki hasn't been playing great, but Darno was playing pretty poorly before he came before he hit the DL as well. Um what do you think at this point in the season, what do you think Darno's year long contribution could be? Well, I think the the biggest skeptical part of it for me is 
just how long it is until he actually gets back onto the field for the Mets. But, you know, if, if it moves along at a reasonable pace, uh, and, you know, when we heard he was in California, we kind of assumed it was going to be a really long time. Mm-hmm. But if it starts moving along and he gets back, say, mid to late June, which is still, you know, anywhere from three to five weeks from now, uh, I think he can do sort of the same thing he did last year. I, I'm hoping that what he did at the plate this year was at least partly affected by what was going on with the shoulder. And if he is completely healthy, I think he can hit the way he hit last year. Um, and that's a really significant thing, especially with Lucas Duda out. Uh, and, you know, we that's a much... I don't know. I don't know if it's more bleak or vague or both, <laughs> but whatever the case, I think there's a very significant improvement in getting him back. And that was sort of the case last year, too. He was among the flurry of things that the Mets had going on in late July and early August mm-hmm. of players coming back, getting promoted, getting acquired by trade. You know, it was the reinforcements and then some all coming in at once. Uh, preferably, you don't have guys all out for that amount of time, and they don't all have to show up kind of, you know, <laughs> at the same time. But, but yeah, I think Darno can be that, you know, top five hitting catcher. Uh, he might not ever get the plate appearances to qualify on a leaderboard over the course of a full season. And then, you know, it probably won't be the case that he does that this year. But I really, really like his bat. You know, and he doesn't look like a home run hitter mm-hmm. because he's just not that big of a guy. But the power is there, you know. And, and that it, strange things can happen over a small span of time or a short span of time. So that could just be it. It could just be. To start this year, he was, uh, you know, in a slump, not not quite there. But if the injury was affecting him for some or all of that time, you know, I, I, I'm a believer in his bat when he comes back. And I'm not a huge critic of his arm either. It's better than Ploegi's. Well, that's not saying all that much now, is it? Well, um. No, but <laughs> the, the, I think... I think there are some Mets fans who would argue the opposite is true. Some Mets fans, some prospects, prospect uh, analysts. Uh, that's a Keith Law joke, in case you were uh, trying to keep score at home. Um, ah, yes. The uh, That kind of dovetails into our next conversation, which is about Lucas Duda. Now, Lucas Duda has a uh, stress fracture in his lower back. There is no timetable set for his return. He's in the 15-day DL, but that really doesn't mean anything. It's more than likely a longer DL stint than that. And it's, um, we said before, it's a little bit troubling because he did have a minor back issue last year. Now we're seeing this, but are you particularly concerned about Duda yet? Or do you have to wait and see a little bit more? Because the back is scary to me. Back injuries are scary, as David Wright is walking proof of. Yeah, I I think 
I think the overall situation at first base is sort of my concern at this point. You know, there's we just don't know how long dude is going to be out. Uh, it's reasonable to assume he will be out for a while, which was, I think, the phrase that they went with when they gave the update on his injury. Um, but they're in a spot now that, hey, you know, Wilmer Flores hopefully comes back quickly off a short rehab assignment on his hamstring injury, which didn't really sound that bad to begin with. Um, so that gives you one spot on the roster that you can say, all right, the three guys that we had mentioned earlier, one of them can be, uh, you know, returned to the minors. But going out and getting somebody who might be a passable everyday first baseman uh, or even a platoon mate with Flores at first, I think that really can't hurt you in the long run. You know, if that ends up being what you have at first base and Duda is out for the season, you can see how things look in mid to late July and see which teams might have pending free agents that they're looking to get rid of who, who you could trade for who are significant upgrades. Um, I mean, essentially, we're, we're talking about James Loney at this point. <laughs> yes, we are. Um, you know, and Loney, um, in, in the write-up of it on the site today, uh, I had also mentioned Justin Morneau, who is dealing with his own rehab situation, isn't signed with the team right now. Uh, but he won't be know. available till what the end of June, uh, or sometime in June at least. You know, the I think the latest sort of clear update was that he was going to pick up a bat in June. <laughs> so, okay. you know, but it, it it's a situation where you can bring in guys like that, and if they don't pan out, you're presumably you know Loney, you you know you're not really going to have to pay much money because Tampa is paying his salary this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and Duda, oh, wait, not Duda, Morneau, sorry. Uh, sort of a similar situation where you probably wouldn't have to guarantee him that much money. Uh, you know, you can give him an opt-out if he's in the organization and doesn't get the call-up to the uh, big league team. Those are Those are types of moves that I think one of those guys isn't necessarily exciting, but... You can bring them in, kind of hope that it works out. They're going to be better than any of the options you have in the minor leagues right now mm-hmm. to come up uh, and buys you some time. You know, I, it, The one thing you wouldn't want to do from their perspective, I think, and it's understandable, uh, would be to go out and make a big trade and give up a lot and then have Duda's back injury somehow turn out to be you know, the best case scenario and, you know, the middle of July rolls around and he's ready to come back. And then you, you know, you have a sort of Ike Davis, Lucas Duda situation all over again. Right. That is a player people are calling for on Twitter because he started to hit in AAA. Oh, did, did he find a AAA team? He did. He's with uh, Texas's AAA affiliate, I want to say. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, because I remember... Looking up at some point, either late in spring training or early in the season, where he wound up, because there, briefly there was that, I guess it was just a rumor. He didn't actually do anything with the Yankees, did he? I don't believe so. Or if he did, he didn't make the opening day roster. 
whatever the case was. Um, I remember checking out what he was up to. Man, he's still he's only he only just turned twenty nine. I know. That's crazy. But uh, but yes, you are correct. He's been playing at Texas's AAA team, and he's been kind of hitting him as of late. He wasn't. He started the year abysmally, but he's been kind of hitting as of late. Um, yeah. The one option I haven't heard anyone talk about because it's an option that can't be executed today, but people have been talking for the last two seasons or so about needing to get Darno out from behind the catching, behind the plate. If Darno was healthy, what would you think of Darno taking some reps at first base? I'd be fine with that. I mean, I think, you know, if if they don't want to do it, I'm not going to complain. Uh, but if they wanted to get him there, I think I'm a little more comfortable with Darno trying to learn it than, say, Conforto. Yeah. You know, where it's it's a situation where... He, you know, I don't know. Catching is not really like any of the other four infield positions. But I feel like there's less of a difference between those things and playing the outfield. You know, we've seen what putting an infielder in the outfield can look like uh, on multiple occasions over the decades as Mets fans. (laughs) The aforementioned Uh, Lucas Duda, the aforementioned Daniel Murphy. Yes, and Todd Hundley w- was on their level uh, when it came to playing <laughs> in the outfield. So, you know, there's there's something there, and maybe it's just sort of like it's the cliche thing, but, it, you know, we, we heard about it a lot late in Piazza's career. Uh, but we've also seen, you know, Buster Posey does it regularly. Uh, Joe Maurer did it and then ultimately transitioned to first base. Mm-hmm. And Scott Hatterberg. Yes. So yeah. Didn't it, um didn't Jason Phillips play some first for the Mets? I think so. That sounds right. So yeah. I'm on board with that. If there's a healthy Travis Darno in the lineup regularly, that is my primary concern. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the catching situation doesn't look great if you have Darno at first. But you know, the first base situation might not look great if he's catching. Uh, you know, this is one of those things where I'm I'm a little bit torn. You know, they, they are clearly contending. Uh, you don't want to see them sacrifice wins as a team. But you don't want to see them sacrifice too much to make up for, you know, players who are absent who may return. Right. And it's a, it's a situation. It's still a spot right now where I'm like, like man, Juan Uribe on this team would just look <laughs> so good. Yeah. And uh, I'm proud of us both for not mentioning Dom Smith. Well, yes. Although he did get mentioned on the SMY broadcast. He did. Tonight. He did. He did. So I'm sure Jeff will be hearing about that. <laughs> I'm sure. Thanks, Chris. Sure.
Hey everyone, Steve Shriver here once again with our Twisney This Week in SNY Minute on Amazing Avenue Audio. So last Wednesday, May 18th, the Mets and the Nationals played, um, and during the bottom of the sixth inning, the uh, SNY cameras honed in on a man in the stands wearing a very bright, very orange jacket, um, along with an orange and blue tie, and uh, Keith Hernandez was was incredibly taken with this jacket because, of course, Keith has a fantastic sense of style. So let's go to the clip. Here's Keith fawning over this guy's orange jacket. All those World Series towels come in handy. I like the jacket. <laughs> Court, <that's> like, <laughs> fashion with Keith. <laughs> Love that orange jacket. Is that corduroy? Or is it, or is it I, suede? I think it's uh, velvet. Oh, that had a little bit of a longhorn look, kind of like your tie last night. Oh, skipping in. Uh, that might be that cheap cotton. <laughs> but he's got the orange and blue tie. I know you like that. So if you catch this week's edition of This Week in SNY, you'll be able to see the full uh, animated uh, gif of... Keith's fashion tips, which uh, is, is, was really a, a highlight of uh, this week. Uh, an excellent job by the guys in the truck. So that about does it for your This Week in SNY Minute. I'm Steve Schreiber. Back to Amazing Avenue Audio. Welcome to Forgotten Mets. I'm your host this week, Brian Renzi, and I offer you the bizarre and chastening case of Julio Machado. Uh, 1989 was a confusing time to be a young Mets fan. Why did we let Backman go? Why are we trading Dykstra and McDowell for Juan Samuel? Why does Greg Jeffries suck? We wouldn't know till later that these things were inextricably linked. But... In the dog days of this disappointing season, a bright spot showed up on my horizon in the form of a side-arming young reliever with electric stuff named Julio Machado. Machado seems like his Mets moment came a couple years too late, as he would have fit in perfectly with the old guard mid-80s Mets. He was all restless energy and bravado and personality, fist-pumping every chance he had, daring opponents to hit his best stuff, always working himself in and out of trouble, and he had a sweet mustache and curly-haired mullet to boot, and a great nickname, too, the Iguana Man, born from the fact that he ate iguanas. Right. So the Mets had signed him to a minor league deal after he was released by the Phillies in spring training in 89, and he rocketed from A-ball through four stops in the minors, racking up 119 Ks in 100 relief innings, including a .62 ERA in Tidewater. He got the call up to Flushing in September, and while fan interest is always piqued by the appearance of a new prospect, I was crushing hard on his whole deal when he struck out two of the first three hitters he ever faced in a Mets uni. He was exciting the way Henry Mejia was exciting. He walked too many guys, but usually found a way out of the mess he made when it counted. Unfortunately, what was to come for Machado puts Mejia's situation in stark relief. Machado didn't make it through a full year as a Met before he was traded to Milwaukee in the middle of 1990 as part of the deal that brought Charlie O'Brien over. 
His first full season with the Brew Crew in 91 saw him start to come into his own. He struck out 98 hitters in 88 innings while only giving up 65 hits. He still was walking the, the ballpark, uh, walking 55 people that year, but still the promise was clear at age 25. But that would be his last season in the majors. That offseason, while pitching for his hometown team in the Venezuelan Winter League, he was driving home from a game when there was a traffic accident which resulted in him fatally shooting a woman from the other car. According to his account, the windows of the other car were tinted and he thought that they might be robbers purposely running into him, so he fired some shots to scare them off. With his left hand, his non-dominant hand, which he claimed showed he had no intent to kill. Whatever really happened at that moment in Julio Machado's head, the result was that an innocent woman was dead by his hand and he was facing 30 years for murder. This is where it gets bizarre. <clears throat> it took two years for him to be convicted and sentenced to 12 years in prison, but he went through two and a half more years of appeals before the conviction was upheld. Throughout this whole process, he continued to pitch for his hometown, Aguilas de Zulia, often facing chance of assassin, assassin from opposing crowds. Now this stuff was happening in the inf infancy of the internet and my Spanish is no better than Google Translate, but it appears that after his appeals were exhausted, he went out on the lam in 1996. And uh, it seems he was nebbed in Colombia in early 1998 when he evidently was hanging around as an onlooker while police foiled a bank heist which he had nothing to do with. But somebody recognized Machado in the crowd, and he was arrested and sent back to Venezuela to serve his sentence. Internet legend has it that he organized a prison baseball league, which he must not have played in for long, because according to his Venezuelan stats, he was back pitching for Aguilas de Zulia in the 1999-2000 season, which means he spent less than two years in jail. It's reported he was let out for good behavior. So he pitched till age 38 with the same hometown team he'd always played for before, uh, before retiring after the 03-04 season. And according to Wikipedia, he is still coaching in the Venezuelan league, but it doesn't say where or for what team. Uh, Wikipedia, <clears throat> so close to maybe being information. Well, Julio, wherever you are, let's hope that you are making the most out of your second life. This has been Forgotten Mets from Amazing Avenue Audio. I'm Brian Renzi, and I'll catch you next time down Hazy Memory Lane. One of my favorite baseball writers is Ted Berg. Ted's funny, Ted's interesting, Ted's a really unique guy. You might have read Ted in the past on his blog Ted Quarters or on SNY.TV or heard him as a co-host on the original incarnation of the Mostly Mets podcast. Now you can find him over at USA Today in their For the Win website. So Chris spoke to Ted a couple days ago and enjoy. Joining us this week on Amazing Avenue Audio is Ted Berg. You know him from USA Today where he writes FTW, For the Win. Uh, you probably also know him from his time before that, when he was with SNY at his own site, Ted Quarters. Ted, thanks for coming on. Chris, thanks for having me. Hey, it's, uh, it's good know, to I, have you. 
I should say I still like you know I don't I don't cover the Mets daily anymore, but I still honestly am on Amazing Avenue at least once a day. I don't I think probably a few years ago I was reading little literally every single word on the site, and and I can't say that's still the case, but I visit the site every single day. Well, that's... it is an excellent Mets site. Thank you. It's good to hear that. I think uh, one of the things that we have tried to do is sort of maintain the rational level-headedness that I think uh, the Mets, you know, the Mets blogosphere, for lack of a better term, might have lost a little bit of when when you uh, switched over to the new role. <laughs> well, I think I think you guys were doing that long before I was. I, I think that's been the amazing avenue role kind of for, for a long time now, um, dating back to, like, you know, Mets Geek, which I guess was sort of its predecessor. I, I feel so old now but like <laughs> I want to because when I started blogging it was like oh there are all these blogs that have existed for so long and like I'm doing new stuff and now I'm like oh that's the guy from Blasting's Thrillage and people are like what what does that even mean and it's like, oh like man I don't even know where to start with <laughs> that world like the Mets nerdy Mets blogs of 2007 to 2009 which is now impossibly long ago yeah yeah it does make you feel a little bit old I mean it's I remember you know, back when everything got started, reading Mets blog on a regular basis, and then Mets Geek was sort of the you know, the nerdy corner, and right, like right. that was that was it. Yeah, I mean that that really was it. Now there's like seven thousand Mets blogs. The, yeah, there are. I, some I can of them confirm. are good. I mean, some of them are good. Some of them are less good. They're all over the place. You know, that's, <laughs> that's that's the world. But uh. Yeah, so going from that world to USA Today, uh, you've been there a little over three years now. How's it going there? I mean, from from our perspective, looking at it, it looks like everything's going well. You know, uh, I think they've given you a spot where you can sort of maintain your voice and your sense of humor and, and you know, write things that are silly and write things that are more serious and blend everything together. So is it as going is it going as well on your end as it appears to be? Yeah, I'd say so. You know, it's a, I mean, I think with every job you have like some little worries and complaints and everybody always has their little things, but I think you know, by and large, I have an awesome job and I very much appreciate it. It has been, uh, a constant sort of, uh, not, not really. It's not constant. There was a big adjustment leaving SMY and, and moving to USA today for a variety of reasons. Um, it's a it's just a it's just a different world. I mean, what I was doing in SNY was sort of uh not really my job first of all. Like and no one told me to write Ted Quarters. I was sort of reminded a few times that they gave me the platform and and allowed me to do it, but I was by no means getting paid to write and so adjusting to the idea of now you're a writer, now you don't have all these other responsibilities was was great. But then on the other hand, you know, I uh, I mostly work from home now. I, I've been working. We have an office in New York City. I, I kind of go there in fits and starts. You know, sometimes I'll go three times a week. Sometimes I won't go for two months. And working from home was a big adjustment for me. It's it's very different. I think when you you know it sounds like a dream working from home, and it always did at SNY. The idea that I would maybe not be able not 
have to wear real pants to work every day. <laughs> you know, it was this fantasy world, and then you actually get in it, and it's different when you don't see the people you work for every day, and you don't say hello and see them getting coffee and, and know that you're sort of on good footing. You know, so a lot of the first really like year and a half at USA Today was just me growing accustomed to the idea that they trust me and they think I do good work and I don't need to make eye contact with someone every single day to, to understand that that's the case. And now that I know that, it's awesome because now I they kind of give me a lot of freedom to write about what I want to write about. And, and I can, like you said, if, if there's a shirtless photo of Harry Carey from 1977 that I want to post, <laughs> no one, everybody's going to say, well, if you're excited about that shirtless photo of Harry Carey, we know what you're going to come up with about it is going to be funny. So... Or, or at least they think it's going to be funny. I can't tell you that it's funny. You'd have to read it. But, uh, you know, their their trust that I have something to say about it. And, and if I say, eh, it's not really, I'm not into this story. Or, like, I don't really care that this, another fa- fan caught a foul ball with a baby in his hand, which happens, like, five times a week. <laughs> um, then ever, someone else can do that. Like, I, I kind of have a, a really nice spot right now that I've carved out of, like, I can write about the baseball things and the Taco Bell things and some TV stuff and some culture stuff when I want to. And they kind of understand that I'm going to put out a certain amount of stuff every week. No one's like super hardcore about, oh, it needs to be, you know, this many posts or it needs to be this many words or it needs to be, you know, this much traffic. So it's good. It's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. That all sounds great. I think uh, one point that you made about the whole working from home thing, I've never done it personally. But that was sort of an aspect that you mentioned that I never particularly thought of, the eye contact, you know, the human interaction. Yeah, it's, you know, it's weird. Like, and, and I'm on, we're, we have Slack, you know, I think you, you guys probably work out of Slack. Some, a lot of people work out of Slack yeah. now. Yeah, we do. Campfire, some other, you know, chat room software. And it's, it's cool, you know, and, and from what I understand, the people who do work out of the office don't really talk to each other all that much. They're just talking to each other on Slack. Everybody's kind of plugged into their computer, which is, you know, the weird reality of 2016. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very different thing just because you, you start growing like uh, – especially you – know, and now it's – again, it's it's different now than it was when I started. But you know I was the only guy in New York and it felt like everybody else was sort of in the USA Today main office in, in D.C. And it was me wondering a whole lot like am, are they happy with this stuff? Am, am I – cool or like are they all looking over their computers and being like man ted sucks can you believe how bad this thing ted wrote was you know and and like because i'm not because it's that fear of missing out you know i'm not there seeing them and hearing what they say and so yeah that was like a weird anxious transition uh not you know again like i said like not knowing or not at least having that like confirmation that you're doing fine because no one saw you and yelled at you Right. Yeah. And, and sort of taking that reading, at a, you know, the tone of something on a screen, which is something that I think we all encounter at different times in our own, you know, lives outside of work that you you read. It could be a text message or even a whole thing, a whole piece. And, you know, you might not get all the tones that incorporate that oh, in, yeah, into and, the work. And for me, a lot of it is just like I, I find... I really have no idea, I guess, what's good and what's not good. I, I write something I think is amazing and I'm so happy with and, like, I put it out and it's just, like, 
you know, like no one cares, no yeah. one responds, no one laughs. laughs. And it's like, what happens? And then like I'll do something, I'm like, ah, whatever, this is okay. And people are like, ah, oh, this is great. Like I can't, this is such good. And I don't know. And it's just, it's not. And that's not me saying like, oh, I I crap out great content. That's not true, right? Like I, you know, I'm working on everything and I'm trying hard on everything. But some things I just like way more than others. And there's like zero correlation between how people respond both like internally and externally to the stuff I put out uh, with, you know, how much I actually, how good I think it is. Yeah, yeah, that that's a relatable thing. The, you know, the piece that took the most research and time and it comes out and you look at it on the screen and you're like, yeah, that's that's it. That's what I wanted. And then you see like, you know, it, it was maybe half as well read as, something that was <laughs> a lot more yeah oh yeah and like and sometimes that's just the nature of the thing right like if it's um you know this guy got bust, busted for steroids and and now he's a jerk people are gonna click on that like I, I get that it's just the it's more than anything it's just like the the even and even with the the jokey stuff you know like it'll be like wow like i thought this thing was funny and i thought i made a bunch of funny jokes in here and like i cracked myself up like why wouldn't other people not think this is funny and they don't and then something else that i just kind of thought was stupid and posted is getting you know tons of shares and clicks and and tweets and whatever else so um i guess the moral of the story is don't really worry about it and and, and i'm lucky again in that i have a job that doesn't force me to worry about it and you can just kind of keep putting stuff out and 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 seeing what sticks yeah yeah absolutely um so one of the things to take a turn into Mets land uh one of the things you've written about a couple times recently is matt harvey uh after each of his last two starts it's sort of been uh similar you know very similar i said the same thing twice i just said it in different ways which was <laughs> Uh, I think it'll be fine. Right. And I, I agree with that. And I think I, it's the, the basic principle behind it that I think you had mentioned it in, in a tweet at some point, uh, either yesterday or today. But, you know, when a guy is well established, you, you know, it, it takes a lot to convince you that something has changed. Yeah. I mean, guys just, you know, and, and again, you can find examples. You know, like I, I said, no one ever just suddenly turns bad at 27. And that's not true. Uh, Ricky Romero, if you remember, was a bright, shining star for the Toronto Blue Jays. They gave him a nice big contract and it just went awry, you know, and, and no one could quite figure it out. And it's one of those uh, sort of like a, a minor version of like a Rick and Keel thing where it's just this mystery. I don't think that's what's happening here. You know, you look at Harvey and he's throwing 95, 96. I get that he's not doing it, you know, through the fifth and sixth inning. And, and you know, clearly something's wrong. He's getting rocked. Uh, you don't see Harvey give up home runs like he did you know like the home run to murphy when do you see that off off, off matt harvey you know it, it's it's not right but i just don't think i don't think people fully appreciate how tiny the difference between being a, a 2.5 era starter and a 5.5 era starter really is and, and matt harvey we know has the stuff to be that ace we've seen him do it and i think you're talking about some minuscule adjustment 
that will make the difference between what Matt Harvey has been to date in 2016 and and what we have seen Matt Harvey be in the past and what we will again see Matt Harvey be in the future. And, and you can look at it in any number of different ways. And I'm not discounting, you know, okay, this person is pointing to this mechanical thing and this person is pointing to this velocity thing and this sequencing thing and, and this luck thing, you know, and, and I think that's all part of it. But I think really what it boils down to is it's 10 freaking starts and, and a quarter of a season and guys just sometimes struggle and and there are reasons behind it but the reason you know reversion to the mean is such a strong force in baseball is that these things tend to get ironed out yeah yeah and i think there are sort of some convenient uh conclusions that you can make based on the amount of drama that was involved with all the inning stuff in september and then you know him going all the way through the postseason pitching into the ninth inning you know you, we we sort of had a, a blend of oh Matt Harvey's not going to pitch enough and then wait did he pitch too much in the last game of the World Series you know yeah as as if you know and and again like that's it's I get that and I'm not I, and I, and I want to say like oh no it has nothing to do with all the extra innings he threw you know but I don't know. I mean we're all physical humans who do stuff, right? Like you can uh, and again, the pitching arm is not like, you know, like me going to the gym in the morning or whatever. Like what Matt Harvey is doing is on a different level than what 99.9999% of people ever do, but is our is stuff that that happened to you that like if you worked out too hard in in October are you really feeling that still in in May I, I don't know like that just it it seems like it seems too neat like you said like too neat a conclusion like well he pitched this many extra innings and that's why he's toast now I I mean I think the you know the the Verducci effect the so-called Verducci effect has been widely discounted I think probably uh, even uh, admittedly to Tom Verducci at this point, I think he's even said like, okay, yeah, there's some research that this isn't really uh, exactly what we thought it was. You know, the 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 principal problem being you are working with a, a biased sample because you're only picking pitchers who stayed healthy that year because you would have to stay healthy all year to get that innings jump, right? So you're not mixing in all of the guys who have been previously hurt, and so like you're you're sample is is sort of screwy you know they they're not going to repeat that performance because they're pitchers and pitchers get hurt um anyway uh harvey yeah Yeah. maybe it's maybe it's that maybe it's that i can't say that it's not that but it's probably not that right i think he's just off something's just wrong like maybe that's part of it but maybe part of it too is you know whatever the mechanical thing is or or just he's not sleeping well enough or you know the he overthrew in his first start because he was set back by the by the p thing and then you know tweaked something and that's just kind of been wrong you know i think there are a lot of of ways to get at matt harvey is struggling right now but all it is is matt harvey is struggling right now and it's isolated by the fact that it's early in the season and we you know we haven't seen him throw six great starts before 10 lousy ones uh it just sort of is what it is yeah. Yeah. And I think Robinson Cano is sort of a nice recent comparison, uh, even though he's a position player, somebody who's done this very recently and is a familiar name and face to New York baseball fans. You know, last year he goes out, his first half was miserable, but then he turned it around and, you know, we didn't really hear why, but he, you know, he wasn't feeling like himself for half a season 
you know, got things under control and all that. So, you know, maybe yeah. it, it's possible that there's something there with Harvey that we just haven't heard about that he hasn't gone to to say like, you know, oh, it's, you know, my arm is fine and all that, but there's something that's small that I'm not going to use as an excuse. Right. I mean, that's the thing is you kind of, you know, the the culture around it and and part of this is on Harvey because Harvey has and and I feel like I keep saying it, he has been a guy who has courted attention, right? Like he made himself Matt Harvey, the the Dark Knight, Matt Harvey, the sort of, you know, constant back page guy. And so this this kind of comes with that for better or worse. But he is in a really impossible spot in that there's nothing he can say after and 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 it seems so silly when people act like it matters that he didn't talk to the media. But there's nothing he's going to say in that spot. There's nothing he's going to say that's going to make it okay that he let up five runs in five innings, right? If he says, oh, actually, you know what? Like, I've been having this little thing with my stomach, and I haven't really been – I feel like I'm not sleeping that well. Or, you know, yeah, like there's a little bit of something going on in my tricep and it doesn't feel perfectly tight. Anything he says is going to be an excuse or it's going to be uh, he's, you know, he's overthinking it, or it's going to be he lacks confidence, or it's going to be he's delusional, right? There's no way out of he's been bad. He's been bad. And so there's probably only so many times a guy wants to get up there in front of 40 people with microphones and be like, yeah, I've been bad. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, but despite that... The Mets wrapped up their series today with a win. Steven Matz has been almost as good as Noah Syndergaard, which, you know, sounds ridiculous on the surface. But uh, I remember we were demoting Steven Matz. Yes. Uh, Steven Matz was getting demoted in week one of the season. <laughs> and now Steven Matz is freaking Madison Bumgarner, right? So, you know, it's just the, the same, right? It's always just, every, like, there's no, you guys know, I mean, this is like Amazing Avenue's whole thing, right, is... is the knee-jerk reaction that something needs to be done about every poor performance on a baseball fan field is absurd, right? You just—that's why they play 162 games. These guys are really good at baseball. Let it play out. Yeah, yeah, and I think despite Harvey's ERA and the fact that Darno's been out for a month and all that, the Mets—you know—they're a half game out of first place coming out of the series in Washington. The record is good, you know. It's not. It's not a half game out of first place in a division where the team ahead of them is a 500 team. You know, they're they're in good shape, and it's sort of unfamiliar Everybody's territory. Healthy. I mean, the the whole pitching staff is healthy, right? Which I think, you know, I mean, with the possible exception of Harvey, and we're and you know, obviously there are some concerns about Degrom. I think as well. He just it just hasn't really showed up in the performance so much, but. They're all on the field, you know. You had you entered the season with these five starters, and you still have those five starters in, in at the end of May. That's that's a win in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, it is, and and you know, uh, the <laughs> the the bullpen's been excellent. The lineup has been okay. You know, it could probably be a little bit better. Yeah, it'll be better. I mean, it, you know, it's you get some guys probably playing over their heads, and some guys not playing up to their abilities i think it'll be a little bit better but i think this is the first time in late may in in a very long time that we've had a mets team that we can talk about and say you know oh it's really good but you know how could it be better or could you know is it, is it 
quite good enough. Well, uh, there was that. Wait, there was one year when the Mets were randomly good for a little while when no one thought they were going to be good, right? Like, I want to say, like, the, one of the Frank, like, like 2010. The Mets were randomly. I'm looking it up now. I just want to. I just. I'm not not trying to correct you because it's not like anyone actually thought they were like a real deal team. But yeah, the the 2210 Mets were 11 games over 500 in late June. In yes. late June. Yes, that's it was right. Like the, the Rod Barajas, Jeff Francoeur Mets uh, were playing extremely well before uh, the All Star break happened, and they went back to being the 2010 Mets. I feel like Rod Barajas. I'm just saying. No, no, no. (laughs) Because I was there, Chris, because I was there up close wondering what the hell was happening because they looked like they should be so bad and they just weren't that bad for a while. Yeah, I think Rod Barajas was sort of a good lesson for me personally uh, in, in, you know, seeing regression play itself out in front of you. Yeah, remember how good Rod Barajas was for, like, his first three weeks? It was like, Rod Barajas, well, finally, this guy just, he's 33 years old. He just needed a change of scenery, I guess, because now he's Babe Ruth. But it doesn't it doesn't work that way. It never works that way. Right. Except the one time it did with Jose Bautista, and now possibly again with Daniel Murphy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'm buying it yet with Murphy, but uh, but, you know, he's... I believe that Murphy is a different and better hitter than the, you know always within 1.001 of 734 OPS guy he was for the last five years or whatever because, uh, you know, the strikeouts came down. He started pulling the ball more. He hit home runs in six straight games in the postseason. Like, there's a lot there that says something's gone differently here. And and he's said he made some adjustment. I don't think he's going to hit 400, right? I mean, it's just not right. Good. Yeah, no, I mean, just you know, batting average on balls in play alone is ridiculously high. Right. So, you know, he's got enough in the bank and we talked about this a little bit earlier on the episode as well, but he's got enough in the bank that like the batting average will be a career high. It would be, it would be hard not to at this point. Right. Sort of like, yeah, I mean, even if he's totally Daniel Murphy the rest of the year, if he's two seventy three thirty four fifteen, which is like the standard Daniel Murphy year, if he's that for the rest of the year, it's still his best year by far. Yeah. Um, so I don't have a really good transition, but I wanted to get a couple other things in, uh, one, one, well, it's still related to the Mets, so I'll go with that. Uh, one of the things you wrote about after the last time. You know, this is even attempting, I gotta say, like I do, sometimes I do, you know, like sort of like radio hits with, with random radio stations from around, like, I don't know, I don't know, there's some sort of radio producer mailing list or something where they have my <laughs> phone number and I don't know how they got my phone number but I'll just get texts from people random different and, and I appreciate it it's not like I don't want to it's fun it's cool to do radio it's good practice but they don't even like it'll be like oh okay like we're talking about Matt Harvey we're talking about Matt Harvey like what are the Oakland A's going to do about their left handed relief situation <laughs> and you're like oh god I have no idea like I, I don't know what to tell you yeah I mean, and and then you know, and then like right to the Red Sox, and and why is this guy hitting in this spot in the order? And it's like, man, I sometimes I just don't know. You know, I, I follow a lot of baseball, confident I know what I'm talking about, but like you, know, you gotta, I don't know. You're, you're what I'm saying is you don't need to find a transition. <laughs> well, well, we'll still stick with the Mets one first. Uh, one of the other things you wrote about recently, and it was 
after the Mets and Dodgers played each other in Los Angeles, and it's timely since they're about to play each other again here in Queens, was adding skills competitions to the All-Star game. I huh. think it, it was within the same game that Yasiel Puig and Yoannis Cespedes both made incredible throws, and that was sort of the inspiration for it. So, uh, Yeah, I believe they should do that. I think the Home Run Derby, like, I like I like the Home Run Derby, and, and I said that, but... I think the home run derby is way too long as it is. Like, just let everybody have one round of hitting as many home runs as you can, and then win, and then you know maybe have a maybe have like a the top two guys keep going, right? Like you you just wait you just if you want to have some sort of tournament form, I get that it needs to build. You let you know every fifteen guys try to hit home runs, the two best guys move on to the next round and hit as many home runs as they can and then it's over right like that's that's the the home run derby really shouldn't last more than an hour to me and so i think they should complement that with uh, a series of uh by testing a series of baseball skills and and i think the most important one would be watching Puig and Cespedes throw and like you just set up you know again you don't want to do you don't want to have them throw 50 times because then they'll both die so you set up like <laughs> 10 targets I, I was thinking I was almost thinking like nine targets like it's like frisbee golf right but you're playing with a baseball and you get one shot and whoever gum and 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 they're all different lengths you know it's like you start in center field and the first target is in the visitor's dugout, right? And then you go to the visitor's dugout, and you throw to, like, a spot on the in the crowd down the first baseline. And then, you know, and you just keep moving around and, and throwing at new targets. Like golf. You know how golf works. Um, yeah. <laughs> except except it's Puig, and it's Cespedes, and it's, it's Aaron Hicks, and it's uh, whoever else with – you know, those, the great elite outfield arms, just because it's fun to watch. I want to see those skills. I want to see, uh, I, uh, another good idea. And this one's obviously less feasible, but like, I want to see Daniel Murphy. Can he hit a watermelon? Can he hit a golf ball? Can he hit right? Like the best contact hitters. I want like to see all of the different things they could hit and how well they could time that. So I think there should be like a, a machine that fires random objects um a jar of mayonnaise was one example right like what happens if if you have a pitching machine that that and and murphy has no idea what's coming right but murphy's a great contact hitter so he's standing in there and like you know yeah first comes a golf ball and he's got to hit the golf ball and next comes a jar of mayonnaise and he's got to hit hit jar of mayonnaise (laughs) and i want to see if he can do that better than jose altuve and brian dozier yeah yeah that, that sounds like it would be fun particularly that part but it's the, the general skills competition thing. I think is something that the the NBA and NHL have incorporated into the, their All Star. Uh, you know. Yeah, there's so many more skills besides hitting home runs, and hitting home runs is obviously the best skill, right? Right. But I want to see the others, and and I get that you can't have like the fastest pitch competition because that's dangerous. But there are ways around that, right? There are ways you can test. You can have guys to compete to have the best arm and have the best glove and have the best contact ability you know there's there are five tools so let's maybe we measure all of them yeah i like it uh so hopefully we'll we'll get except to see. i guess races would be boring right no one wants to I, 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 would it be that boring would it be boring to watch like a billy hamilton versus billy burns race maybe not yeah it, well it could be sort of a you know they'd have to make contact with the ball somehow in the batter's box and then you know get around the bases the fastest right touch every base that sort of thing 
So Hamilton's out. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but uh but yeah, so we'll we'll wrap up with I think an appropriate c- conclusion. Uh Taco Bell. I don't think you, you one thing that has not changed at all. You, you've certainly still written about the Mets a, a very good amount uh over the last three years but one thing that hasn't changed even a little bit is taco bell <laughs> yeah i get to write about taco bell every week and they don't like it was it yeah it's a weird thing it's a weird it's a very weird life i have chris it's it's not <laughs> you know i was like because because I, I got hired at usa today i was like i guess the, the sad thing about this is i i'm not gonna be able to write about taco bell every week or you know i'm not gonna be about a little about, able to write about literally anything i want which was kind of how it worked on ted quarters and I kind of do, and and you know, I, I I have kind of now I am doing weekly Taco Bell roundups. So yeah, hit me with Taco Bell questions. Well, Brian asked me to ask one, so we'll we'll start with that. The queso lupa is it lacking the queso? Uh, well, look here, the queso lupa. I would say, based on my own experiences. And based on those of everyone I've heard from, and I've heard, a, a, I think, probably more about the quesalupa from readers and friends and everyone else than I have any other Taco Bell item, especially any other new Taco Bell item, even more so than the Dorito taco. And the overwhelming response is that the, ta- the quesalupa is inconsistent. I think they're using the same amount of cheese every single time, but if it's not well prepared and if it's not recently prepared... The cheese sort of clumps up in the middle of the quesalupa shell, and you don't really taste the cheese, right? If it's fresh, they you get that like the they Taco Bell calls it the cheese pull, and I believe they trademarked that term. <laughs> uh, but you know, like you you there's the big strings of cheese coming out, and it's nice and melty. They actually have to like that's like the one Taco Bell shell that they have to put together at the restaurant it doesn't come like preformed and shipped to them so i think a lot of it depends on on really who's putting it together yeah preformed and shipped i'm familiar with from a uh, a couple of college breaks working at dunkin donuts yeah yeah i mean <laughs> you get like the egg puck in the mail basically yeah <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um so queso lupa aside, you know, uh, one of the things that you did with Taco Bell recently was look at the new designs that they have for their, you know, their locations and you ranked them all tied for first. Was there really a favorite in there somewhere or? I mean, they all kind of look the same. They all kind of <laughs> look like Taco Bells, just like slightly fancier Taco Bells. Uh, one has a fire. One has, and I don't know if that's the plans. It was the only one of which I got that angle. So that the the California Soul design, um, they all have silly Taco Bell names. The California Soul design has like what appears to be a gas fireplace in it, and like I kind of like the idea of like, and they also have like low slung loungy chairs, so you can go like relax and eat your Taco Bell in front of this fake sort of fire. I guess it's real <laughs> fire, but it's not like real wood burning. And, and I kind of like that. I guess I, I would just say, as a pyromaniac and, and Taco Bell fan both, <laughs> my favorite one is always going to be the one that's on fire. Yeah, it's uh, th- that uh, that combination of things is definitely good. The um, 
the, the fake fire pit is sort of a, it's funny the different types of places you see it, you know, in application in real life. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, why not in a Taco Bell? It feels like, I mean, if you look at those, like, if you look at Taco Bell and what Taco Bell is doing, like, it, between those things, those new restaurant designs, and then the, the cantinas, which is another big Taco Bell initiative, there, there was a lot of hype around one in Chicago, which is the first, but basically they're, they're like, fancier Taco Bells. They're not fancy. They're, like chipotle level instead of taco bell level right so they're like stepping up but now they serve booze at at these taco bells and they have like chicken fingers and and various shared appetizers it really does feel like and i don't know if you're you're familiar with with demolition man but the the restaurant wars and and you know the the premise not the premise of that movie but one fun part of that movie was that taco bell was the only restaurant left and Taco Bell was a super fancy place where you went and ate your Taco Bell in like a tuxedo and stuff. And it kind of feels like we're moving in that direction. Yeah. Sadly, I've not seen Demolition Man. but oh, the, it's, a, it's a great Rob Schneider vehicle if you're looking for one. I, I, I don't see why I wouldn't be. <laughs> but but yeah, the the overall fancy, it's not, it's not the term I would use for the Central Avenue, you know, Taco Bell in Yonkers. Which uh, for me that was the college home home based Taco Bell. We had a tradition. A friend of mine and I, essentially, that we would go there, go to the drive through, and I would just challenge myself to eat everything that we had or everything that I had ordered before we got back. And for, it was only like a ten minute drive, so it was basically a speed eating contest as he drove us back to campus. But, is that uh, is that I'm I'm looking at the Central Avenue Taco Bell. Is that the one? Near the Wendy's that is like the worst Wendy's of all time. <laughs> yes. Is yeah, that, yeah. Have you been to that Wendy's and like every time you go to that Wendy's, you wait like 45 minutes for your Wendy's? I feel bad. What if like Wendy's or like some Wendy's executive is maybe it's not like that anymore. But when I live in Westchester, <laughs> that Wendy's was terrible. That's a terrible Wendy's. It, it, no, that I mean, I haven't tried in a while, but I had sort of an unhealthy Wendy's kick. That so you got to you got to drive up to uh, like the the Hawthorne Wendy's, well, up where I used to live. That's a great Wendy's. That's okay. a great Wendy's. The Wendy's in Yonkers sucks. That Wendy sucks. Yeah, it's no, like, it's it, it's bad. Like it was, it was like one of those possible amount of time for your fast food. Yeah, it was one of those that that we don't have that many Wendy's in the Bronx, and you know just driving from where we are. It, it was always easier to go to that one, but it was one of those things that, like, by the third time that it was so bad, it was just like, well, it's just, it's out of the, yeah, rota- the out of the rotation. Couple, the first couple of times, you're like, oh, maybe it's a coincidence. There's no way this uh, Wendy's could be this bad twice in a row. And then, yeah, like, it's like every single time you go to that Wendy's, you're just gonna end up like stuck, and they're out of burgers. Or so it, it's just absurd. It's absurd. Yeah. But it is that Taco Bell, and uh, Dave Thomas would never stand for that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I never had I never had complaints about that Taco Bell. I don't know. See, I don't think I've ever been to that Taco Bell. I always end up because it's always like we're you know anytime we went to that Wendy's, it was like we're heading back from. It was when I lived in in Westchester, and we'd be heading back from someplace, and I'd be like, "Oh, we just need like the closest food. I know there's a Wendy's here. Let's just go to the Wendy's." I don't think I ever made it 
like a half a mile past the Wendy's to the Taco Bell that I now see stands there. Uh, we would go to the Taco <laughs> Bell in, in Elmsburg. Okay. Or, or the Taco Bell in New Rochelle, which is excellent. Mm, good, so you know. good, good to know. That yeah. is uh, next time I'm at New Rock City. <laughs> yeah. as, as we've delved completely into Westchester fast food. <laughs> uh, or the Burger King on right off 287 in, I think, like uh, Hartsdale that just one day disappeared. And then they put up a new Burger King in the spot of that same Burger King, which is like it was it was cheaper for Burger King to just knock down the Burger King and build a whole new Burger King than it was to fix whatever the heck was wrong with the previous Burger King, which always kind of entertains me. And I think I think that's a good note for us to. <laughs> Do you think that our analysis of various Westchester fast food locations is not compelling to a Mets audience? <laughs> this is how I built my career, Chris. <laughs> I, I think it is compelling. Okay. I just fear that we will we could go on for hours. <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't even get me started on that Elmsford Taco Bell. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, thanks again for coming on, and uh, we hope everybody takes our advice about these locations very seriously you can email me if you have any questions or comments on on new york area fast food restaurants i've probably been to them because i'm disgusting uh just (laughs) hit me and i will talk to you about them because this is for some reason something that i enjoy talking about (laughs) and uh you you can find ted's work uh ftw.usatoday.com uh you can find him on twitter at og ted berg and, uh, you know, it's been a pleasure having you on, and hopefully we'll, we'll have you on again, you know, some point down the road. Yeah, anytime. Hi, this is Aaron York for Mason Avenue Audio, and today we're going to talk about one of the only Mets pitchers that hasn't been talked about that much this year. You might have heard of him. His name is Steven Matz. He's a left-handed pitcher. He's the only left-handed pitcher on or in the Mets starting rotation. And he's been really, really good this year. He had some elbow discomfort recently, but he got over it. And he came back into the rotation, and he pitched really well again. Despite 11 days off during his start in Milwaukee recently, or against Milwaukee recently, he allowed only two runs in seven innings, eight strikeouts, zero walks, and those two runs came on a Chris Carter home run in the first. After that, he was pretty much lights out. And what makes Matt really interesting, just because he's not getting a lot of attention, you hear a lot about Noah Syndergaard who after his first few starts of the season, a lot of people were putting him into the conversation as the best pitcher in baseball. And now I think Syndergaard's there again. He had a couple of starts that were only about mediocre, but then recently in his last two starts, he started dominating again. So Syndergaard's gotten plenty of attention. His slider that goes about 95 miles per hour is one of the most devastating pitches in baseball. Then you have Matt Harvey, who's getting attention for all the wrong reasons. We don't need to get into it too much. The way he's struggled to work deep into games, the numbers of how he's struggled through the third time in the rotation have been well documented. And 
During his latest start against Washington, he allowed three home runs, including one to Daniel Murphy that was a really, really long home run. It was blasted into the upper deck. At least that, at least it looked like the upper deck. It went really, really far. Anyway, Harvey struggled. Syndergaard's been awesome. Bartolo Colon hit a home run and has also got some tabloid headline, headlines about him recently. The Mats, since his first start of the season, which he struggled mightily against Miami, has been so, so solid. He's gone at least six innings in every outing, including the one I'm recording during, which is against Washington, and he's pitched into the seventh. He's at six, six and one-thirds innings pitched right now, trying to lead the Mets to a victory. Hopefully it works out okay. But even if he gets into trouble there, he's still done more than enough. And in every outing since that first one, he's allowed either zero or two runs. And hopefully that will hold up today as Anthony Rendon flies out to left field. Mats has been amazing. His ground rate has even jumped up from last year's impressive debut from 46% to 54% before today's start. He's walking fewer batters. He's striking out a little more. His FIP is even lower than his impressive 2.81 ERA. And if he gets one more out in this game, his ERA will go even lower. And he's going to continue to look like an all-star, and one of the Mets' best two pitchers. And it's it's been awesome. I just felt like bringing more attention to him because him and DeGrom are the two guys who aren't getting as many headlines, and DeGrom has pitched okay so far, but not getting the strikeouts or the velocity where Mets fans want them. Meanwhile, Matt's has been so impressive in everything he does, whether get ground balls, strike out batters, control the ball. And he looks to be a key member of this team, this rotation going forward. It feels like every month or so it changes the conversation about which pitchers in the rotation the Mets should retain as Mats does indeed get through the seventh inning. Seventh inning, he's thrown seven scoreless innings in this important rubber game against Washington. Just adding to his legend as we speak. And like I was saying, the conversation about which pitchers the Mets should try their hardest to hold on to changes seemingly every few weeks. Harvey is kind of playing his way out of that, especially since he's a Scott Boris client. Meanwhile, Mats and Syndergaard look like the two aces of this staff that can lead the Mets to a hopeful postseason spot, even if guys like DeGrom and Harvey aren't pitching as well as they did last year. So, to sum it all up, Stephen Matz is awesome. He should get a nickname or a commercial or something because he deserves one. We see Noah Syndergaard going on SNY, walking around New York City in his Thor costume. Obviously, Matt Harvey gets a lot of attention. Stephen Matz deserves plenty of love, too, especially since he's a local boy. He's awesome. This is Aaron York signing off from Amazing Avenue Audio. Now, back to the rest of the show. So we got this email, and uh, I'm going to read it just verbatim here. Dear Brian and Co., 
This question is specifically for Steve Saipa. Is there any reason behind the choice of the Nippon Ham Fighters for the obscure team to follow? I would have thought the Tokyo Yakult Swallows would be a natural pick for a Mets podcast, given their status, at least in my very limited understanding of the MPB, as Tokyo's second team after the Giants. You know the second team in the country's biggest city. They even have a mascot similar to Mr. Met, if I'm not mistaken. Are the Ham Fighters just a more interesting team? Just interested in what the selection process was like. Thanks for your time and keep up the great work. Love the Ham Fighters. Love the Ham Fighters. Kenneth. Well, thanks, Ken. And um, I decided to take this right to the horse's mouth. And so take it away, Steve, with your answer. I thought it could be fun to pick a team from the Honkball Hooft class in the Netherlands or the Baseball Bundesliga in Germany. But at the end of the day, I know next to nothing about both of those leagues. I really don't know the players. I really don't know the teams. And news coverage is pretty spotty. Uh, You know, any team from those two leagues would really fit the definition of obscure, but there's a point where being too obscure becomes a problem. And those leagues, they really pass that point, you know. Uh, There are some pretty good-sounding team names, though, I do gotta say. Uh, Not so much in the Dutch league, but in the German league, the Paderborn Untouchables, or even better, the Doherin Wild Farmers, really sound like a team that uh, Amazing Avenue Audio could get behind. But anyway, to answer the question, we went with the fighters simply because... No one else had a strong opinion. Uh, The majority of everyone involved in Amazing Avenue Audio mentioned the NPB, so I knew that we were going to feature an NPB team, but no one really had any preference with what team we were going to highlight. The Fighters are my favorite team. I actively follow them. I know the most about them, their history, you know, past players, so on. So that's why I went with them. Plus, (laughs) you know, the Shinjo connection, of course. Um, but I, I was thinking about going with the Hanshin Tigers because they're one of the older and more prestigious teams in Japan, or to appease Stewart, one of our regular listeners, the Hiroshima Toyo Carp. But at the end of the day, again, it, it just comes down to knowledge. Uh, I know more about the fighters and their players and the different issues that are relevant or war relevant and the team history and so on and so forth than I do any other, uh, team in Japan. Uh, you know, I don't want to adopt a team and try to bring other people on board into the fold without being familiar with the inside and the outs of the team, you know. So I hope that answers the question. And just so everyone knows, I'll probably be back in a week or two with regular fighters updates. Um, I'm currently I'm handling all of our draft coverage for the 2016 first year player draft. In a, you know, it's going to be happening in a few weeks. So between that, work, and I have the new Fallout 4 DLC, I really just haven't had the time to keep up with baseball in Japan, let alone regular baseball here in the U.S. Uh, So in a couple of weeks, the draft will be done. Hopefully work will be less hectic, and I'll be done with that DLC. So I'll have time to love the fighters. So until then, love the fighters, love the fighters. It's Kate with week two of the Panic City Meter for Amazing Avenue Audio. So last week, I completely jinxed myself when I said that all good things in my life break. I recorded that segment Wednesday afternoon, and Wednesday night, Harvey got completely shelled. The good news is that nothing has changed, and he's still getting shelled. Which brings us to our, I would say, biggest problem is that Matt Harvey is just not good at pitching right now. 
It's either wear and tear from last year. It's Tommy John issue. It's mental. I don't know what it is. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I'm, I'm just a fan. So I don't know why Matt Harvey is broken, but he's getting killed and they they keep running him out there. Terry Collins announced today that he will be making his next start on Memorial Day on Monday. So maybe that gets fixed. Maybe he just needs to figure it out. I don't know. But Mets have gone five and two since last week. They went against the Brewers, who are not good, and the Nationals, who are good. They're a half game back. It looks good from the surface. There are some issues in the actual team, other than Harvey. Um, Cologne hasn't looked good. He's probably a little distracted, but didn't look good last start. Um, Flores is due back. Darno is actually working out in Port St. Lucie now. He was in California rehabbing, and he's actually back with the Mets. Um, Ty Kelly is up because we have an issue, and that is Lucas Duda, who has broken his back pretty much. Once again, not a doctor, but he broke his back. They're saying he's going to be out, I think it was six to eight weeks. It kind of seems like a really not a lot of time to rehab for him. So we're probably going to be missing a few months without Lucas Duda. Thus, eventually we are going to get a middle infield of Wilmer Flores, Eric Campbell, Ty Kelly, and Matt Reynolds. And the Mets have trotted out some not great infields over the course of my lifetime, but that's a pretty bad infield. So we will see how that works out. Matt Reynolds got his first hit today. Ty Kelly started last night, was completely overmatched by Steven Strasburg, but that's not really fair to the poor kid. He looked, he looked okay at third base. Not, you know, it's kind of hard to compare to David Wright because he doesn't look good at third base anymore. But Ty Kelly looked fine. And Syndergaard is Syndergaard and he is just one of the best pitchers in baseball. And Stephen Matz is looking really good. He pitched eight innings shutout today. He's just not overworking. He just, he just looks really good. And he is, I mean, I think it's safe to say he's a number two on this team right now. So... There are problems, but the Mets still look good. Like I said, they're a half game back. It's very early still. And I'm not worried. I would just... There needs to be a first base solution. That's not Eric Campbell. Because yuck. So hopefully they find something. They, they're not going to be able to fill within, unfortunately. But I still think the Mets are... I still think they're going to be okay. And we'll be back next week, and hopefully I will have fewer injury reports for you. Well, folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thanks again for listening. We really appreciate this feedback, the support, everything. So please tell a friend about the show. Rate, review, and subscribe in iTunes. You can follow the site on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Amazing Avenue. Please check out AmazingAvenue.com. If you're listening to this podcast, I feel like you have to be checking out the site. But if you haven't been, there's great content every single day about all aspects of Mets fandom. You can follow all the contributors for this week's show on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. Kate is at Kate E. Feldman. Steve Schreiber is at underscore Mr. Met. Steve Saipa is at Steve Saipa. Aaron York is at APY5000. And Brian Renzi is at brenz78. 
I uh, mentioned Brian last week because I was supposed to put his Forgotten Met segment in, and I uh, forgot. I'm not going to pretend I didn't. Uh, This is still pretty new, so apologies for missing a segment. Uh, You can also follow our guest, Ted Berg, uh, at OG Ted Berg. Let me make sure I got that right. Yeah, OG Ted Berg. Um, A pretty funny Twitter handle, if I must say so myself. Um, Coming up next week, we are going to have a a really special episode. We're going to do a draft preview, so stay tuned for details about that. And until next time, let's go Mets. Mets.